consumers give a lot of lip service to their commitment to socially responsible products, but are they willing to back it up with money? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Oftentimes, the so-called good product, the one that was made with full attention to the rights of workers and protection of the environment, carries a higher price tag. So who's willing to pay it? That question lies at the heart of new research conducted by two professors at MIT's Sloan School of Management, Tim Kraft, visiting assistant professor of operations management, and Karen Jung, associate professor of operations management. They created a behavioral lab, essentially a mock supply chain, to learn how much consumers value corporate adherence to human rights and supply chain visibility. They did it by setting up a three-person game in which participants played the roles of consumer, seller, and worker. Their conclusion? Consumers are willing to pay a premium for supply chain visibility. But what exactly do we mean by that term? How much more are these socially aware individuals willing to pay? And does this limited, controlled experiment actually reflect the real world? Let's find out. Here's my conversation with Tim Kraft and Karen Jung. Tim Kraft, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Bob. And Karen Jung, welcome as well. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. So we have a new study from the MIT Sloan School, which finds that consumers are willing to pay a premium for supply chain visibility. Please tell me how you reached this conclusion. So we ran a lab experiment on university campuses, basically testing and looking at consumers' preferences and motives around supply chain visibility. The way we do this, we bring students into our lab, we match them up randomly and anonymously into groups of three to mimic a supply chain dynamic with one player playing the, quote, consumer, one playing the intermediary or seller, and another playing the worker. Now, they don't know they're playing those roles. Instead, they're really just playing this dynamic for money. They just know that they're player A, player B, or player C. We have them play the dynamic and look at how are consumers willing to pay or are they willing to reward the seller for the improved treatment of the worker or better treatment of the worker in this dynamic. And then the way we further look at that is say, how is that changed by the visibility you have into the outcome of that treatment, the certainty you have into the outcome of that treatment? And that's the way we really try to look at the consumer's perspective and understand Are consumers willing to pay more for supply chain visibility? And under what conditions are they willing to potentially do this? So you adopted gamification principles in order to address this issue. I'm wondering, Karen, are you drawing on any past similar types of experiments that use that same technique in order to gauge any kind of consumer sentiment? Or was this created for this study? I would say the game itself is created specifically for this study. But the overall methodology of using gamification or more precisely a controlled lab experiment is a methodology that has been widely adopted in both economics, psychology, marketing, and 
operations disciplines. For example, in my past research, I have done a number of other supply chain games to try to understand how buyers and sellers interact with each other, how the conditions in which they interact affect their decision making. For this particular study, we're interested in this three-part interaction among a seller, a consumer, and a worker to try to understand how much improved visibility into the treatment of the worker can affect the consumer's preferences as well as willingness to pay for the product that come out of the worker's effort. So in the entire area of corporate responsibility, social responsibility, you are specifically drilling down to the issue of worker rights and treatment as opposed to a broader universe of issues that might also include like environmental sustainability and the like. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. One of the things with experiments like this, a lot of times you have to be very specific in the dynamic you're looking at. And for us, the worker treatment, fair labor wages made the most sense since our dynamic is incentivized and the players are in there really trying to make money. That's the one that aligns the easiest and, of course, is a huge issue. And so it felt like a good fit to design our experiment around this. The phrase supply chain visibility is so broad in and of itself. When consumers say they'll pay for supply chain visibility, what do they mean by that in terms of how visible they want the supply chain to be? Because after all, global supply chains consist of multiple tiers and partners. How visible do they want it to be? You are right that supply chain visibility is a broad concept and different people actually would define it differently. Some of them would think about whether I know the origin of the raw materials. Others would think about whether I know the actual impact of the companies or the supply chain practices on the environment or on the society. For us, I think we are taking a specific perspective of supply chain visibility, which is looking at how much the companies as well as the consumers know about the outcome of any social responsibility-related initiatives. Think about an example where a downstream company making an investment to help to improve worker conditions in the contract manufacturers' factories. Without visibility of their supply chains, it's very hard for the companies to assess what is the actual impact of those investments versus with high visibility, then they would know exactly what has been improved, how workers in those factories have benefited from this investment. And that's the type of visibility that we are most interested in this particular study? That's actually a really astute question because that was actually one of the very first things that we realized was that we needed to really define what we were talking about when we said supply chain visibility and supply chain transparency. If you Google supply chain transparency, you see all different sorts of definitions and ways people are using it. And so for us doing the research, that was actually step one was just delineating that and saying, For us, supply chain transparency is this idea that, and most people don't think of it this way, it's not just the disclosure of information to consumers, but it's also the back-end visibility you have into your supply chain. And so that's what we need to do is really put that kind of fork in the ground and then from there kind of build our argument. Yeah, because a lot of people might initially think that what we'd be talking about here is working conditions at the contract manufacturer's facility, say like a Foxconn in Taiwan or China, for instance, the main factory. And then maybe we'd extend it one or two tiers down to subcontractors, such as were involved in the Rana Plaza factory disaster in Bangladesh a few years ago. 
But we also talk about the need to respect workers' rights all the way back to the farm and back to the mine. For instance, conflict minerals in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Does that figure out all the way back to the beginning of the supply chain? Are you talking about that with consumers as well, or is it mostly just the factory profiles that they're concerned with? So the design of the experiment has, and and I I would say that's one of the beauty of doing a lab experiment to investigate a more generalizable phenomenon, is that we actually abstract away a lot of the detailed context that we are looking into. So we will say that actually the results of the experiment would represent more broadly whether we are thinking about you have visibility into the raw materials, whether it involves conflicts and bad treatment to the workers at the mine, or that you can think about visibility into whether the workers in the contract manufacturers' factories are treated fairly. So the experiment itself has abstracted away specific contexts, but we do believe that the results from the experiment are actually generalizable to both of these contexts. Now, obviously, the implication for the company is that if you want to go deeper into your supply chain, there is a much more substantial cost implication of how you can get that visibility. And that cost implication has not been factoring into our study because our focus is on the market impact or the market benefit of once you achieve that visibility, whether you can benefit by having a better market position. Tell me more about the incentives that were built into the laboratory experiment. Who gets paid? In other words, I can understand that the companies or the suppliers might be rewarded by the buyers or consumers for good behavior and social responsibility, but do the people who are playing the part of the consumers, are there incentives for them as well, or is it just for the workers and for the suppliers? That's a good question, because typically the way we establish these experiments is you'll start out the players with, for example, an endowment or with some money, and so they each have these, this money. And so for in our context, one of the things we wanted to do was make it kind of directionally the same as what you'd see in reality. So we have our seller player making starting out with more, our worker player starting out with much less, and our consumer somewhere in between. We then have the dynamic occur with the different payments occurring, whether that consumer player is willing to give some of their money to the seller player, assuming that the seller player then transfers some of the payment to the worker player to help out the worker player. And so what we focus on, and this is part of the things you'll see in this kind of behavioral economic study, one of the things you'll see in studies like this is putting it in context where it's almost extreme cases. And so we're looking at consumers such that they're willing to give up some of their money to pay this seller player, hoping that then this will lead to the worker receiving the money. And so in that sense, what that's trying to create is really look at the consumers that are willing to pay for social responsibility, willing to maybe put the extra amount out there or pay for that premium for the socially responsible product. Not everybody does it. We have plenty of consumer players that hold back and don't make the payment, but we want to find that portion of the consumer base that are willing to actually put that payment out there. And so that's typically how the dynamics work in these kind of settings, but it's all payment driven. And these players, these students are making anywhere from 20 to $35. And this is money that they want. And so they're in there playing the game to just really make the money. And so what we're trying to test is 
that underlying behavior of who's willing to make that prior payment to try to help the worker out. Are you able to generalize from these rather limited lab experiments just how much more consumers would be willing to pay for corporate social responsibility and supply chains? So I would say that it will be a, a stretch to conclude from the actual experimental data to say that this will be the actual premium that consumers are willing to pay in an actual marketplace. There are a number of reasons because of the abstract environment. We don't consider competitive products. We don't consider other factors that could go into purchase decisions of the consumers. However, we do believe that the at least the directional results would hold in the sense that if you have a more visible supply chain, consumers do reward you for creating that visibility into your social responsibility practices. A general rule of how to interpret these experimental results is not so much taking the numbers literally, but more looking into directional changes of behavior. And then building off that, seeing the types, taking our base result and then saying what types of consumers are willing to do this. Is it the consumers that maybe demonstrate self-serving brides or maybe the consumers that are more willing to help another, what we would call higher pro-social? That's really directionally how we want the results to show up is by type. How do our results come out? I take it you made no distinction between e-commerce purchases and traditional brick-and-mortar retail purchases and the consumers that frequent those two options, correct? Correct. So that's actually... it's. I mean, you asked that because that's actually kind of with these lab experiments. The next step on what we're currently working on is a couple of early stage projects where we're actually testing conceptually these concepts in the field in a real retail purchase setting. So actually in the store, that's what we're working on now. And you're correct. There definitely could be a difference. And we'll see in an online purchase setting versus a retail setting. Not to mention that you use students in this experiment, which means you necessarily, by definition, limited your sampling to probably in terms of age and income and the like. But I'm wondering, will you be extrapolating this and try to divide your conclusions into things like age, gender, education, income, geography? Because at this point, it sounds like you're not able to make those distinctions. Actually, so to clarify, the subject that we use do include a portion of what we call community members. And these community members are not necessarily students. And they could be the working class and have different age and income profile as the the students. And even within the students, there are undergraduate and graduate students. So in our sample, the age spans or the participants are actually quite wide from the 20s all the way to, I think, some in the 40s. I am not concerned about that. The age is playing a big role of affecting the result. And we do analyze and don't see much effect in terms of age and gender. But you raise an interesting point, And that's a natural extension of this kind of research is once we bring to the field, then we will be definitely more conscious about understanding how the demographics as well as the socioeconomic backgrounds of the actual consumers could affect their attention and interest in getting more visible information about a company's supply chain. And that's definitely a point that we have designed into our current ongoing projects to dig a little bit deeper.
So when you go out into the real world, I wonder if you were also, maybe this is outside the boundaries of your own studies because other studies have been done on this, examination of products that sell themselves and market themselves as being socially responsible. Generally, those products are more expensive. They push them for that reason. But a number of those products up to this point have not sold very well. And then in the real world, it seems like the results have been kind of mixed in terms of whether consumers are willing to pay extra for that brand that claims that it's socially responsible versus the one that's cheaper that doesn't. So can you somehow take what you've learned in a limited lab experiment and compare it to that real world? And do you think we'd see real progress in terms of the larger universe of consumers willing to pay more for better behavior? Yeah, sure. Actually, that's very exciting directions that we are going after indeed. And there are two things that we are currently pondering. One is that the key insight from our lab study is point of visibility. And how we operationalize visibility is providing really deterministic and detailed information about the impact of social responsibility initiatives undertaken by companies. And I think that going back to your comment about many products have been conveying marketing messages about them or marketing themselves as a socially responsible brand. But we think that what is missing here is that they haven't provided the level of information that match that branding. So what we are actually testing is if a company can provide very detailed factual information of how they have been helping and promoting responsibility in their supply chain with high visibility, then actually more consumers are going to buy in into that branding image and are willing to either pay a premium for the products of these companies or more inclined to choosing these companies' products versus the competitors. So that's definitely one dimension that we are looking into and trying to test in some of our ongoing projects. A second dimension, I think, is coming back to your earlier point about what type of consumers are we talking about. So you mentioned gender, you mentioned age, income level, and perhaps education. And we do believe that there is an important dimension that is called psychometric mapping of consumers, which is looking into the general values and beliefs of consumers and how those general beliefs and values affect their purchase decisions. And this is something that we are also trying to measure in the field by talking to consumers using structured interview and survey techniques in order to see, for example, are those consumers who naturally care about helping others more inclined to paying attention to this visible information and as a result are willing to pay a premium for the associated products or are there other psychological factors or values that they adhere to actually would affect their purchase choices. So in effect, you almost have to do a psychological or psychometric profile of your sample consumers before you can even ask them the questions about how they feel about supply chain visibility. I would say in parallel, (laughs) not necessarily before. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of our experiment and the design of our experiment is slightly different in the style of lab experiments, we do field experiments. Unlike marketing, where they often like to prime the consumer, we're trying to not prime the consumer and not try to get them in a mindset that, oh, this is about social responsibility. Oh, of course, I'm a naturally good person. I'll be the one that gives money. We instead kind of want to get at their underlying, am I good or bad, and not prime that kind of mindset in them before they make their decisions. I'd like to just finally ask each of you your personal opinion on how we should 
frame this question in the first place, the question of corporate responsibility? Should we frame it as something to be done because it's good for business or because it's just good? Personally, the companies that are going to do it just because it's good, that's going to come from the leadership. The leadership is going to be the ones that drive that. And not all companies have that. That's the reality of the world we live in. Of course, being interested in this topic, I think both of us would love to see it, see more of it, but it's just the reality of the world we live in. What we're trying to do really is to start to identify ways that can prove the point that it's also good for business for the rest of the companies out there, the ones that are a little more hesitant or holding back on trying to get this visibility and transparency into their supply chains. Karen, what's your view on that? So I think to add to that is that just like how I teach my students in my classes, I always emphasize this triple bottom line within sustainability. So you have to be economically sustainable in order to truly achieve environmental and social sustainability. I think we will not have a very bright future if we are relying on companies burning money just for doing good for the society. I think we'll be in a much better world if the company is doing good to the society, to the world, while at the same time staying profitable and bringing us good products and good services. I think that both of us believe that we can get into these triple win situations. And what we are studying is really solving one piece of the puzzle of how we can achieve this in the end. Tim Kraft, Karen Jung, I want to thank both of you for sharing the results of this latest MIT Sloan School of Management study on consumer preferences with regard to corporate social responsibility. I will link to that study in the show notes to this episode, and we will follow your future efforts with interest to see how you expand this and what more is to be learned. But in the meantime, thank you very much for spending time with us. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. You're most welcome. That was my conversation with Tim Kraft and Karen Jung of the MIT Sloan School of Management, talking about the commitment of consumers to socially responsible businesses. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.